There are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. With about 2,000 of those already fulfilled. 2,000 prophecies already fulfilled. By the way, to the letter with zero errors while the rest have yet to be fulfilled that's that's 2000 promises made good 2000 commitments satisfied now if you were to consider the last 2000 things that you committed to do in your life the last 2,000 promises you made to yourself or to others. Honestly, how many of us could say that we fulfilled every single one of those commitments exactly as we said we would? You don't have to answer because I know the answer to that question. It's none of us. Not one of us. Whether intentionally or not, right? Sometimes... Uh, it's just a matter of being unable to fulfill commitments that we make to no fault of our own. Sometimes circumstances beyond our control dictate an inability to follow through with a commitment. And yet other times, if we're being honest, we simply just don't do what we say we're going to do, right? Sometimes we just simply don't follow through. So look, whatever the reason, whether intentional or not, there isn't one of us who can honestly claim to be 100% reliable when it comes to doing exactly what we say we're going to do every single time. Which, by the way, is precisely why when people tell me they don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, my response is, so you mean to tell me you're not? You're not a hypocrite, really? Because look, Christian or not, there isn't a human being alive who perfectly lives up to their own ideal about how life should be lived. Whatever that ideal is, not one of us. So yes, the church is full of hypocrites, which means you should feel right at home. Because like it or not, you're a hypocrite too. We are all hypocrites, everyone down to the last man. God, on the other hand, is flawless. When it comes to doing what he says he will do, his track record is perfect. He always, without exception, does precisely what he says he will do. And he's proven it over and over and over and over again. Yet, If you think about your own life, when I think about my life, if we're being honest with ourselves, the amount of time and energy that we spend thinking about how to solve problems or how to deal with troubles or how to overcome obstacles without talking to God first, probably a lot more than we'd like to admit. The truth is, most of us spend an inordinate amount of time and energy relying on things other than God to meet our needs. Even though... All that he's ever done is proven himself to be reliable and faithful and capable to meet our needs over and over and over again. 
It doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it, because if you compare your track record of being reliable to God's, it's not like you're a close second, right? We're never going to be as trustworthy as God is. And yet most of us trust ourselves far more than we trust him. We do. We don't want to admit that. But the truth is when whatever it is we believe is best for us, whatever it is, when that's different than what God's word says is best for us, the truth is most people will choose their own way rather than God's. Because we trust ourselves more than we trust him. And then, of course, when it doesn't work out the way we wanted it to or thought it would, then we turn to God. Because for so many of us, he is a last resort instead of the first. And of course, the question is, why? Why are we like that? Especially when you consider his track record compared to ours and the fact that he never fails even while we continually fail. Why in the world don't we choose to rely on God more than we rely on ourselves? And the answer, at least in part, is that we're all looking for that big download, that big uh, revelation from heaven that is God's plan for our lives. So we go to a prayer meeting, or we fast and pray for some period of time, or we ask friends to pray with us because we want God to reveal his big plan for our lives so we can get on with it. Right? But then when it doesn't come that way, when we don't get the big picture, the big answer that we're looking for all at once, we take matters into our own hands because we think we need to rely on our own wits and our own resourcefulness to make things happen because it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. Well, look, as good and necessary as prayer meetings and fasting and praying with other people is, and it is, but look, that is generally not where the vast majority of direction for your life comes from. It's not the great sermon or the voice of the prophet or the latest groundbreaking book or sage advice from a friend that will ultimately get you where you need to be. Again, those things are good and even necessary, but by far and away, the overwhelming amount of divine direction that you will ever receive from God throughout your lifetime on this earth comes from daily walking with Him in constant conversation with the Holy Spirit. It's the seemingly small, daily, ongoing conversations with God that reveal your steps for that day. It gets you where you need to be, ultimately. And, and you want to know why he chooses to reveal his big, profound, earth-shaking, revolutionary plan for your whole life, piece by piece, and bit by bit, day after day after day, instead of all at once? It's because when you only get what you need for each new day as each new day comes, then you have no choice but to rely on him every single day, day after day after day. Unless, of course, uh, you choose to rely on yourself instead. And here's the most amazing part about it. The reason God wants you to come to him day after day after day for your daily needs is not out of some sadistic desire to keep you begging, to keep you in want. No. The reason God wants you coming back to him day after day after day is because more than anything else, 
He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you and talk with you every single day. He wants you to be close to him. To come to him with every question for every need and every trouble, big and small. Why? Because he has a good plan for your life and he wants to share it with you more than anything. He wants to share it with you, not just through a prophet or a preacher or a friend, but through a deep and daily relationship one-on-one with you. Where more and more and more each day, you're learning to rely on God. And that's the point. Because we want the big download, the big revelation from God. We want that watershed moment where he reveals his plan that sends us off into a whole new direction and adventure. And all the while we're missing out on his plan for our lives today. Because we're not listening to that low whisper that spoke to Elijah in the wilderness as he sought direction from the Lord for his life as described in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah who's being hunted by his own people who want to kill him much like David in our story today Elijah is hiding in a cave on a mountain desperate to hear from God for some direction for some kind of plan for his life to find out what's next and as Elijah waits it says and behold the Lord passed by And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. Now listen, we know from the stories in the Bible that God can speak through the wind. We know that he can speak through an earthquake. He can speak through a fire. He's done it before. We know he could have done any of those with Elijah, but instead he chose a low whisper. Why? Because he wanted Elijah to come close. Right? When there's a hurricane, what what do we do? We run away from it. When there's an earthquake, we we try to get away from it. When there's a fire, we try to stand back away from it. But when someone is speaking to you and they whisper, what do you have to do to, to hear them? You have to come close. God wanted Elijah to come close so he could tell Elijah what was next for him for that day. You understand why God doesn't tell you everything at once in your life? Because he wants you to come close to him every single day. And listen, until you learn to rely on that that still small voice, that low whisper, that steady, ongoing, spirit-to-spirit conversation that he wants to have in relationship with you every day, until you learn to pray without ceasing, as the Apostle Paul says, then you're going to continue living from mountaintop to mountaintop experience, from church service to church service, from prayer meeting to prayer meeting, from revelation to revelation, and you're missing out on all the days in between where God is speaking no less into your life. Because he is speaking, you understand, every day. 
Usually, it's in a low whisper. You just may not be listening. Look, this is a lesson that some of the greatest men and women of the faith have had to learn throughout human history, as we'll see in our story today as we continue to work our way through 1 Samuel, where David, as much of a man after God's own heart as he was, even David had days where he chose to rely on himself instead of relying on God, instead of seeking and heeding the voice of the Lord, instead of listening to that low whisper, he took matters into his own hands instead. And every single time he did it, there was a cost, a loss, for relying on himself more than he relied on God. So let's pick this story up where we left off last time and see what David has to teach us about learning to rely on God every day of our lives. For Samuel chapter 21, we'll begin with the first six verses. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread that the young men have kept themselves from women and have kept, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So if you were here uh, for the last installment of this epic story, you'll remember that David and his best friend Jonathan had determined unequivocally, like there was no question that King Saul was bent on killing David, which means David now has to go on the run because there's no place that's safe for him in the kingdom to hide. And, and it was such a monumental decision for David to have to make. Right? He's got to leave the royal court. He has to leave his home. He has to leave his wife. He has to leave his friends, especially his best friend, Jonathan, and set off in this completely new direction for his life. Right? This, was a, this was a radical departure for David to go from serving the king himself, married to the king's daughter, best friends with the king's son, loved by the king's own staff and the people of Israel and the heir apparent to the throne, to now running for your life like an animal, unable to be with your family, hiding out in caves, hunted by the king and his men so that Saul can prevent David from ever becoming king by murdering him. This was a watershed moment in David's life, and he knew it would be, which is obvious when you read the story in the last chapter where David and Jonathan, while seeking this revelation from God about what David should do next, they referenced the Holy Sovereign Lord, all caps, Yahweh, more than a dozen times just in that one chapter. We talked about that last time. In other words, they are 100% relying on God at that point in the story to show them what to do next. And you saw it over and over and over again as they said, the Lord will reveal to us what to do. And of course, David gets his definitive answer to the question, which sends him off in this totally new direction for his life. And yet it's as if he's been given that big download 
Now that he's been given the big revelation from God about what to do, it's almost as if David momentarily stops listening to God. Right? He knows he has to run for his life. He knows he has to evade Saul if he wants to stay alive. And so it's as if David says, okay, thanks God, I got it. I'll take it from here. Right? Because as we read through this chapter, this very next chapter of the story, David, even though he's in desperate need of direction from God, he doesn't even mention the Lord, Yahweh, one time in this whole chapter. Not once. Samuel, the, the narrator, mentions the Lord a couple of times, but not David. Not once. Right? He's silent when it comes to seeking God because he's trying to handle everything he's going through on his own at this point, by his own wits, with his own resources. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, next week, it ends in disaster with an entire village of innocent men, women, and children, not to mention the entire priesthood being slaughtered. All because David is relying on himself instead of God in these decisions he's making, and he knows it and he admits it later, as we'll see. And it all starts right here in Nob, a city between Jerusalem and Gibeah, where the, uh, it became the priestly city, Nob did, after the destruction of Shiloh back in chapter 4, where Ahimelech, now the great-grandson of Eli, right, the high priest, and he's a brother of Ahijah who had joined Saul and his, as his spiritual advisor after Samuel withdrew his services from Saul. And so Ahimelech is now the priest, and of course, he's loyal to the king, which is why he comes to meet David trembling. Because Ahimelech knows that David was the commander of the royal bodyguard. And as such, he would never travel alone. In his official duties, David would always be accompanied by royal provisions and royal bodyguards of his own. Unless, of course, he's running from something. And so immediately, Ahimelech knows something is off. Because not only is David probably disheveled in his appearance, right? He's just... He's just been running to, uh, to save his life. He's just left his entire life behind, his family, his friends, his wife. He's been weeping with Jonathan, his best friend. He's had nothing to eat. He has no supplies to live on. And now he's for several miles running away from Saul. And of course, he's alone, which again, would normally never be the case. And so Ahimelech begins to ply David with questions. Hey, why are you alone? No one with you. And David's immediate response is to deceive Ahimelech because he doesn't trust the priest. Because David knows where Ahimelech's loyalties lie. And so instead of seeking the Lord about what course to take for that day, instead David runs to the priestly city and immediately begins lying to the priest in order to get some desperately needed food. And so after explaining to Ahimelech that he's on a secret mission for the king, which of course is a complete story he just made up, David then demands provisions from Ahimelech the priest, to which the priest replies, I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. In other words, I don't have any common bread or profane bread as it was referred to, regular bread. It was the bread that non-Levites would eat. And yet Ahimelech tells David that he can have the holy bread which was actually only meant for the priests. But he says, you can have it as long as you and your men have kept themselves ceremonially clean. Even though the Torah required that such food be consumed only by Aaron and his sons, meaning the priesthood, in a holy place, according to Leviticus 24.9. So Ahimelech, 
even though he's, he's being deceived by David, he doesn't know that. So he's acting on good faith. And actually, he's choosing mercy and compassion over the ceremonial law, which, of course, he's commended by Jesus for doing later in Matthew chapter 12 in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, right? We heard this from, from Paul earlier. And second is like it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets, including the bread of the presence. In other words, while David relied on himself for his own provision, lying to the priest in the process, Ahimelech was relying on the Spirit of God, even as he violated the letter of the law in order to provide for David. In fact, we know from the next chapter that Ahimelech was actually seeking God's direction for how to help David during this part of the story that we're reading today, because he understood that ultimately, whatever provision David would be given was ultimately going to come from God. And so look, it, it wasn't the manner in which Ahimelech gave the provisions to David that was the problem. No, it was the manner in which David took them that was the problem. Because when you fail to seek God first for what you need in this life, whether big or small, then you're taking something for yourself under false pretenses because you're saying to God, you know what? No, thanks, God. I got this. I can take care of myself. David just figured he had it under control, that he could handle his business. And look, by all accounts in this chapter, it seemed to be working until we get to the next chapter and find out the cost of David's decision to rely on himself instead of relying on God. And this is where, this is where we run into trouble today when we fail to seek God first for our every need, big and small. Because then we're taking things for ourselves under the pretense that we don't need his input or his guidance or his approval first. I've said it to you before. Look, we often confuse God's blessing in our life with his approval of how we're living it. When often those are two very different things. Okay, the end doesn't always justify the means. David being provided for was absolutely God's will. But how he obtained that provision was not God's will. Right? Certainly God wants you to have blessings in your life. But that doesn't mean you can obtain those blessings any way you see fit. Why? Because there's a cost. And by the way, most often it's at the expense of those around you. There is a cost to living a self reliant life instead of a God-reliant life. And again, most often it's others who pay the price for your self-reliance. You want to know why? Because of what your self-reliance is focused on. Self. The polar opposite of what Jesus taught and modeled for us in the Gospels. Listen, as followers of Christ, we are to live spirit-reliant lives, not self-reliant lives. Because a spirit-reliant life puts your focus squarely on God and other people. A self-reliant life leaves God and other people in the dust while you focus on yourself. This is why, after describing all of the things that we need in this life to thrive, 
both big and small. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just seek him first. And then after that, all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Because listen, it's not just about knowing where God wants you to be. It's also about knowing how he wants you to get there. It's the journey that matters most. The daily walking and talking with Jesus. The day in and day out relationship that you're building with him through the big things and the small things. It's the constant conversation. The daily pursuit of closeness to Christ that will shape your life far more than the watershed moments that are few and far between. It's about learning to rely on God, not just for the once in a while big things, the big moments, but for the everyday little things, the quiet moments when he speaks to you in a low whisper. Which, by the way, will not only build up your provisions from God as you seek him, but it will build up your relationship with God. C.S. Lewis once said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 9. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. The descendants of Esau were some of Israel's most hated enemies. And when Saul had waged war against them back in chapter 14, he took prisoners of war, Doeg the Edomite being one of them. And it says that he was detained before the Lord, which means he was serving against his will. And it says that he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And that particular ancient word there used for chief in this verse, Abir in the Hebrew, can also be translated as violent and obstinate. In other words, the choice of words used to describe this man, uh, this prisoner of war that has been pressed into service by Saul is meant intentionally to paint him as a villainous figure in this story. And as we'll see next week, he lives up to the billing. In fact, David later admits in the story that the ominous presence of this creepy prisoner of war Doeg made him feel very uneasy. But right now, David's business with the priest isn't finished and so he continues his deception explaining that given the king's haste in David's clandestine orders that in addition to food he's going to need a weapon and it's no coincidence that the only weapon available is the sword of Goliath the same sword David obtained from the enemy of God's people by boldly and unapologetically relying on God to do the impossible through him when no one else would. See, David utterly 
relied on God alone to use him, a young shepherd boy, to defeat the mighty enemy giant Goliath. And yet there must have been a pang of regret for his deception as Ahimelech hands David that sword, which recalls, of course, the honesty and valor and total reliance on God that day long ago on the battlefield as now David stands before the priest lying through his teeth to try and save his own skin. What a profound contrast in David's life, relying on the sword of Goliath instead of the faith that killed Goliath. And as David relied on himself for his own preservation with Goliath's sword in hand, Ahimelech relied on God to direct him to give David that sword again, as we'll see in the next chapter. So again, it, it, it's not that God didn't want David to have that sword. He did. He just didn't want David to put his faith in that sword for his own preservation. Because when we rely on ourselves to protect and preserve ourselves, often we end up shielding ourselves from the very things God wants us to actually be exposed to, and we expose ourselves to the very things God wants to shield us from. Listen, if David had been as overwhelmed with the need for self-preservation that day when Goliath taunted the armies of God as he is now in this story, he never would have confronted and killed Goliath. The Israelites' entire posture that day was defensive, right? They were hunkered down, trying to defend themselves from an attack instead of taking the fight to the enemy. Why? Because they were completely preoccupied with self-preservation. And the problem with self-preservation is it endangers all the people you were meant to protect. Because you're focused on yourself when you're supposed to be focused on them. The people God put in your life who need you to provide and protect them. You see, that's what self-preservation does. By definition, it makes you focus on self. And the result of living that way, man, instead of taking risks for others is, by the way, you are called to do. Instead of taking risks for others, you avoid risk to yourself. And in the process, you deprive other people of the best parts of you. You also deprive yourself of the best parts of this journey that God put you on. Like the part where you get to kill the giant that everyone else is afraid of. The part where you save your marriage when everyone else has given up. The part where you love broken people that no one else will. The part where you stand up for those who cannot stand for themselves. The part where you speak the truth when no one else is willing to. The part where you go places no one else will go to save people no one else is interested in. The part where you shine like a beacon of pure light in the darkest parts of this world. The part where you give up everything you have to pursue the call of God on your life. The part where you take risks for Jesus that no one else is willing to take. The part where you fear not doing what God created you to do more than you fear what the enemy is trying to do to you. The part where you live a life that is so reliant on God to preserve you from one day to the next that you wouldn't make it a day without him. I don't know about you, 
But those are the parts of the journey that I don't want to miss. Because they're the best parts. The parts where we learn to rely on God to preserve us through every challenge, every trouble, every danger, every risk, big and small. Author Marnie Swedberg said, God's goal for you is total dependence on him. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 10 to the end of the chapter. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul is struck down as thousands and David is ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks in the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So needing to get clear of Saul, realizing he would never do that in the land of the Israelites, David heads some 30 miles to the southwest of Nob into Philistine territory, hoping to be accepted by the Philistine king as a mercenary. In other words, David walks right into this Philistine city wearing Goliath's sword, no less, with the thought of hopefully not being recognized by the locals. And yet as crazy as that sounds to us, it actually wasn't a bad plan necessarily because look, up to that point, the vast majority, if not all of the Philistines that David had ever come into contact with face to face were dead because he killed them all. And so who would there be in this city, right? Who would actually recognize him? And of course, hiding out anonymously in a Philistine city would be the perfect hiding place from Saul, who would never expect David, the great conqueror of the Philistines, to now go and live with them. And yet, as brilliant of a plan as it may have seemed to be, David was overly optimistic about his ability to remain unknown among the Philistines because the truth is his fame had spread among them just as much as it had among his own people. And so immediately they recognize him as the one who had struck down so many of their own people. And so they grab him and bring him to the Philistine king. And David knows he's in big trouble, which is interesting, actually, the fact that David was so fearful when you consider how many of these same Philistine people he'd struck down by his own hand, right? He killed 200 of them just to win the hand of Saul's daughter in marriage. And yet here he is, terrified for his own life. And so David decides to pretend that he's gone crazy, totally insane. And so he made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. In other words, he starts carving graffiti into the city gates and drooling all over himself, which, by the way, in ancient uh, Semitic culture was actually a big deal because the beard was an important symbol at the time of manhood. And I like to think it still is today. And, and, the, and so the desecration of, of one's own beard 
especially with spit, according to several passages actually in the Old Testament, was an obvious indication of derangement, mental, mental illness, because there was no man in his right mind would ever allow his own spit to run down his beard intentionally. And since insanity was actually seen as a divine inf uh, affliction, in other words, insane people were considered taboo. So they weren't to be handled or even harmed in that culture. And of course, David knew all of that. And so he was ultimately released, right? Whew. That was a close one. Except he's released back into the same situation he was just in to begin with. And so although David relies on himself for his own salvation, he's right back where he started running from Saul, no better off than when he began. Because look, as long as you rely on your behavior to save you, you hear me? As long as you rely on your behavior to save you, you will never be secure in Christ. When David relied on God to be his salvation, he was unstoppable. Yet as soon as he began to rely on himself, he was never safe. Because salvation is found in Christ alone you with me we cannot behave our way into heaven of course that doesn't stop us from trying does it we try to be good enough we we try to be religious enough we try to be moral enough we try to be accepted enough to get us into heaven based on our best behavior and the bad news is you will never be good enough to earn your way into an eternity with Christ you won't be. You will never be good enough relying on yourself. You will never be religious enough or moral enough or saved enough based on your very best behavior to escape the wrath of a holy God. The good news is you don't have to be because Jesus is enough. And because he is enough, he did for you what you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to do on your own. He paid your debt. He canceled the death sentence that has been hanging over your life since the day you were born. Which means now, all who call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, everyone who relies on Christ alone for their salvation will be saved. Acts 2.21, Romans 10.31, Joel 2.32. There are no asterisks in those verses. There are no exceptions for the really bad sinners. There are no exclusions for the most broken, dysfunctional, damaged people among us. Listen to me. No matter what you've done, no matter who you have become, no matter how bad you've messed up, you can call upon the name of Jesus today and you will be saved. Well, how can that be? How can that possibly be? I've made such a mess of my life. I've relied on myself so long. To be honest, I can't understand how God would ever accept me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge 
him. And he will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's not something you do. It's something he does. As you simply learn to rely on him. In fact, that's all he's asking from you. To simply rely on him to do what you could never do on your own. And I'm telling you, when you learn to live like that, to rely on Christ alone, you'll stop worrying about where your provision is going to come from. You'll stop obsessing over your own self-preservation. And you'll stop trying to earn your way into heaven because in Christ, all of that is provided for you. So there's nothing left for you to do but to enjoy the very best parts of this journey that he's put you on as you more and more and more each day learn to rely on him. Let's pray.